this scripture. Um, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Mr. Gill. Thank you, Mr. Gill, uh, Pastor Roberto, uh, Julian Land last week uh, for teaching the last three weeks. Um, they've done a wonderful job, and I really appreciate uh, that my dad has been able to take some time off for rest and refreshment. Um, we will be resuming our series, Church Life, next Sunday, <clears throat> and uh, my dad will be back, so make sure that you're here. Um, but today, <clears throat> I have the honor and privilege to speak to you about some things that the Lord has put on my heart. So, let's get started. I'd like to talk today about the character of God. Um, you see, when, when I was in my late teens, I remember having a conversation with my parents, and my dad's the pastor here, one of them, um, and so you can, you can understand how our talks about scriptures go. Um, <clears throat> and I asked them, if Jesus is the answer, and if Jesus is in the New Testament, and through him is the new covenant, why is the Old Testament necessary? Um, if you know me, if you actually know me, um, I'm usually kind of an instigator, and I like to question things and pull on loose threads. Um, I like to play the devil's advocate a lot. Um, and I honestly don't remember exactly how that conversation went down. Um, but I do remember that they stressed the importance of the Old Testament, or what I refer to as the Hebrew Bible. Now, years later, I love the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, it is my favorite book. I can read it every single day and never get tired of it. Um, it's beautifully written. It, is, it has everything. It has drama. It has war. It has beauty. It has scandals. It has talking snakes. It has pillars of fire. It has nice gardens. It has family feuds. The list goes on and on, right? The book is amazing. But the main reason why I love the Hebrew Bible so much is that it shows us the need for Jesus. And it ultimately leads us to the person of Jesus, the perfect human to come. And lastly, and I think just as importantly, it shows us who God, Yahweh Elohim, is. We see God's character and how he works in the world through the Hebrew Bible. Now, when you ask someone who thinks they know about Christianity or the Bible how to describe the character of God, you might get answers like mean, vengeful, strict, scary, misogynistic, unfair, and selective, etc. right? The list goes on and on. We've all had those conversations, I'm sure. But if we read the Bible with an open mind to hear what the authors and the Holy Spirit are trying to convey to us, we see that God isn't like that at all. In fact, the whole point of the Bible is that God loves humanity so much that he's willing to work with them to do the will of heaven on earth, but it is the humans who are the mean, the vengeful, the scary, the unfair, and the selective beings, not God. So that's the overall theme of today's lesson, and the title is The Paradox of God's Love and Justice. Now, we're going to start in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, so if you want to flip there in your Bibles, um, that'd be great. And we're going to read one of the most quoted scriptures throughout the Hebrew Bible. This passage in some way, shape, or form is quoted over 20 times in the Hebrew Bible, the way, I kind of, the way it was explained to me, and, and I really like this, is it's like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. That's what it's like. It's, it's quoted so many times. In some way, shape, or form, it's quoted. And a quick context to this passage before we read, and we'll dive more into it later, is that Israel has just committed adultery against God after saying yes to the covenant that God has presented them. And God is not pleased, and he's ready to destroy them, but Moses intercedes and God relents. And after this, for the first time in the scriptures, okay, God's character is described. In fact, God describes his character himself to Moses. But 
if we've been tracking with, uh, from Genesis up until the point of Exodus 34, even though this is the first time God's character is stated, it most certainly isn't the first time we've seen God's character in action. Now, uh, we're going to read Exodus 34, 6 or 7. I have a translation that is a little bit different than yours because um, it's cool, and this guy that wrote it, I thought it does a really good job of translating it into you know, English from Hebrew. And so mine says, Yahweh, Yahweh, yours might say the Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant of loyal love and faithfulness, keeper of loyal love for thousands, forgiver of iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will surely not clear the guilty, visitor of the iniquity of father upon sons and upon sons of the sons upon the third and the fourth generations. Now, if I did a quick temperature check, right, I read this to you guys, if we were like in a classroom, by the way, I, I teach a lot, so uh, you know, my job is, my profession is in education. So if I was in a classroom and say, hey, okay, how many of you um, like that first part, the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loyal love, forgiver of sins part? I definitely like that part, right? That's a great part, right? Great, now how many of us like the not clear the guilty, visitor of iniquities upon the third and fourth generations part, right? So there's the paradox, right? That's, that's what we're here to discuss today to see. I think that, is, that this is a problem with most of us, right? Most of us just here in Christianity, most of us out in the world that are not part of the Christian faith, we're all good with the grace and love part of things, but we hate, hate being held accountable and corrected. And we think that there's tension between God's love and justice right? How can there be love and justice, love and consequence, love and judgment, right? But we're going to find out how that looks. So the questions that arise, and these should be on, on, on your screen, the questions that arise are, how can God claim to be loving, faithful, gracious, and compassionate, but still bring consequences, judgment, and justice to the guilty? Another question that we come to is, what does this slow to anger thing mean? What does it mean to be slow to anger? And lastly, the last one is, what, sorry, does he punish sons and daughters for their parents' and grandparents' mistakes? Which leads to our main objective, and this is on your, your guys' uh, little paper, is to see how God's love, mercy, grace, faithfulness, and patience coexist with his righteous anger and justice. And to see that God's justice is actually an aspect of his love and that they are not in conflict with one another. In fact, they're actually the same. So, to meet these objectives, we need to go backward to the beginning of the story of the Bible and make our way back to the context of our main text today in Exodus. Are you guys ready? Cool. So, Genesis 1 through 3, that's going to be our first part. It's just, you know, the whole thing. In Genesis, God creates this good world. He, a good, good world. He creates order out of chaos. He brings light to the darkness, and he creates life. He plants a garden in the middle of this area called Eden, and then he forms a human outside of the garden. He forms this human from the ground, and then he breathes his ruach, or his life, into the human, and then he places the human in the garden in Eden. God creates the human to be his representative on earth, to do the will of God. The human is also given authority over all other living things, but God notices that everything in his creation is good, except for what? Except for the fact that the human is alone. So God splits the human into two, and he makes male and female, and God gives the humans two commands, which are be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and take care of this good world, and the second command being to eat of any tree in that garden except for what? The tree of knowing good and bad, right? Those are the two rules, pretty simple. 
So why did God create this good world and then create humans to be his representatives? Because one, he wanted to share his goodness with someone, right? He built this beautiful big world. He creates this thing. He doesn't want it just for himself. He wants to share it with others. And two, because he loves his creation. The answer is love. Love. It all starts with love. Now, through his love comes the opportunity to respond in love by trusting him and recognizing that he is God and wants what's best for us, or, or we can respond by not trusting him, thinking that he doesn't actually love us, speaking of God, and wants to hold us back from something. And we see that in Genesis 3, cue the talking snake. What causes the humans to fall is their unwillingness to see God's love and fully trust him, and instead, they desire to be like God themselves and decide what is good and bad in their own eyes. Now, after the humans disobey God, so they've chosen to eat of the tree of knowing good and bad with the help of the snake, <clears throat> after they've disobeyed God and eat of, the, eat, of the free of, eat of the fruit of the tree, the humans have abused God's love. Listen, they've abused God's love and God has to respond to this. He has to. God meets with the humans after they disobey and he gives the humans consequences. And this can seem harsh at first. The consequences aren't very nice. But if you really read, really read this story, you'll see that in spite of their sin and their mess up, God still provides grace and care for them. So there are three major factors to be seen post-fall in the garden. The first being that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, if you go there, Genesis 3, verse 15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking of this to the snake. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here, despite the human's failure, God shows his grace and loyal love by promising, that, that promising the human one to come and deal with evil forever, which we know is who? Jesus to come much later in the story. The second and third factors come from verses 20 through 24. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, that means life, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of the Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Again, at first glance, this seems like God is being very harsh. But if we really look, he's showing patience, he's showing loyal love, and he's showing mercy. We see that even though they sinned against God, one, he only kicks them out of the garden, right? So they're still close, they're still in Eden, they're still close to the presence of God, right? Um, in fact, I think they're literally camping right out in front of that garden. Like, I think they just go out and they're camping right there, and they're still close to God's immediate presence. And God also shows caring because he is providing them with clothes, even though they don't deserve it. He doesn't respond in anger. Notice, he doesn't respond in anger. He responds in justice, but also mercy, love, and care. And thirdly, since the humans have just had their eyes opened, now if they eat of the tree of life, if they, they just ate of the tree of knowing good and bad, if they eat of the tree of life, they'll live forever in that sinful state. And this should scare us, because I know myself, I can be very mean, I can be very bad, right? And if I live forever, that would not be a good thing, okay? Could you imagine if some of the worst tyrants and war criminals that we've ever 
imagined or witnessed would live forever, it's no good. So even though God is taking the opportunity to live forever from them, it's actually an act of grace because he knows how bad things would get. So through the first story in the Bible, we can see God's loyal love, his mercy and grace, even in the midst of his justice and correction. And again, if you looked at this with a quick glance, which most people do, you may not see it, but it is there. The next story after the garden, really the next story, is the story of Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve. In Genesis 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 2 through 7, we're going to read this. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of the time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So God isn't pleased with Cain's offering for whatever reason. And instead of punishing him, what does God do? God gives him a chance to do things the right way, which again is an aspect of his loyal love and being slow to anger. God gives Cain a warning. He gives, he gives Cain a warning, right? He says, sin is crouching at the door. It's ready to get you. It's ready to get you. And how does Cain respond? What, do we know the story? He kills his brother Abel out of anger. And God knows that this happens. And just like Adam and Eve, Cain's parents, when God confronts Cain, Cain gives them an excuse. Am I my brother's keeper? And God responds with another instance of his caring nature and heart for humanity where he tells Cain that he heard his brother's blood cry from the ground. God is concerned about the bloodshed of the innocent and the oppressed. And then God smites Cain with holy lightning, right? No, he doesn't do that, right? He definitely doesn't do that, right? God does give Cain a consequence. He does kick him out of Eden, which seems to be the choice that Cain wanted since he didn't take the advice that God had given him to rule over his sin. But in the midst of the, the exile that God gives Cain, God still provides protection for Cain. And it's an act of his care and mercy and love. Let's see verses 13 through 16 in chapter four. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I could bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face, I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And, that, and the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Guys, murder was a capital offense back then, right? When you killed someone, you died. This is, again, an act of God's mercy and grace. So hopefully we're starting to see it. God, through his loyal love and commitment, is trying to work through the humans and partner with them to do his will. Humans don't respond the way that they should, we should. And instead of disintegrating them from the earth, God continues to be committed to them by caring for them. We see this through the clothes that he makes for Adam and Eve. And protecting them, we see this through Cain and the mark on Cain. It is his loyal, listen to this, it is his loyal love and mercy that sustains them However, there must be justice for evil. In this specific case, God couldn't leave a murderer unpunished because that puts others in danger. Also, if we look closely, God's justice was just letting Cain be the author of his own demise. By not listening to the advice that God had given him and actually killing his brother, 
Cain pushed himself out of the presence of God. So can God's love and justice coexist? I think yes. And I actually think that they are not in contention or conflict at all. But his love and justice are actually the same thing. If you're not convinced, that's okay, because there's more that we can look at. Let's, um, I also want to make a point that nowhere in these first two stories has God done things because he is angry. In fact, the first being to be angry in the Bible isn't God, it's who? It's Cain. It's a human. God's anger does, not, does show up later, though, and that's what we'll get to by the end of today. Let's go to chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. And this is 10 generations from Adam and Eve, so it's been a long time. Some time has passed in the garden story. And verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the, the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made the man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now let's start with this. What is the main motivation behind God's coming actions? What did we just read? Is it anger? It's not anger. It's grief and it's sadness. God is hurt. God is grieving what humanity has become on the earth. Since the earth has become so corrupt with evil, God cannot sit idly and let these things happen, so he must intervene. There must be justice. But we can also see his loyal love and commitment to the humans because a righteous man finds favor in the eyes of the Lord, and God saves humanity through him and his family. So let's continue in chapter 6. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with what? Violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover inside out and out with pitch. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is in the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall, become, you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Okay, so again, how are we feeling? At first glance, first glance, that's some bad PR for God, right? <laughs> if we saw a newspaper headline, it might read, angry God destroys humans, right? But if we look at what's really happening, we see that God is so saddened by the state of humanity on earth that he must intervene. We see, you see that there is such a disregard for human life at this time that people were literally killing each other off the face of this earth. They're literally just killing each other. Not only were they killing each other, but the Hebrew word used for violence in this text could also imply that people were stealing from each other, they were cheating each other, and oppressing one another. Just a general disregard of the preciousness of each human being. And God is absolutely not okay with that. So, if humans are killing each other off, God is like, this is what they want. This is what the human beings have decided. They want to take each other out, so I'm going to give them up to their desires and flood the earth. 
God is giving them what they really, really want. A godless place, a place outside of the presence of God where bad and chaos rule. God takes his hand off the earth and his sustaining grace that keeps this good world good and ordered leaves, which lets the chaos come back and disorder and decreation begin to happen. In fact, if you read chapter 7, verse 11, if you guys go there, it says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the foundations, all the fountains, excuse me, of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heavens were opened. It is the exact opposite of what God does in Genesis chapter one by separating the waters and the land and the sky. So God's justice in this story is giving the humans what they want, giving them to their own chaos. And this leads us to a few things that I want us to take away from these stories so far. Number one, it's gonna be on your, on your screen. God is patient with humanity. This wasn't an immediate consequence, right? Some time had passed, 10 generations, but there does come a time where enough is enough and God must intervene. If God allowed humans to continue down the road of destruction, things would continue to get worse and eventually they'd kill each other off or there would be a mass oppression and warmongering humans, cue the Nephilim, who would trample on everyone else to make themselves the elite, which God is not okay with. Number two, through God's justice comes loyal love. Because he is utterly committed to partnering with humans, does he just leave them out to dry? No, he saves humanity through the righteous man, Noah. And fun fact, Noah is the first man in the Bible to be called righteous. And number three, God's judgment or justice itself is a kind of mercy. Stories, and this is really important. I want everyone, I want everyone to really understand this. Stories about God's judgment depict God either withdrawing his order-creating power from their lives or exiling people from the realm of order and life into the realm of disorder and death. In these stories, God is simply giving people what they want, but he also often spares them in some way from an even more destructive end. Again, God's judgment is itself a kind of mercy. In fact, after all this, after humans being horrible, killing each other, no disregard for human beings, human life, no regard for, for God, and God flooding the land, the flood stops, and God tells Noah in chapter 8, verse 21, if you get there, this is an awesome verse, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God literally says, because humans are so bad, I will never kill them off again. If that isn't love, I don't know what is. God doesn't sit and watch the earth crumble. He intercedes, which is an act of justice, but also love and mercy and grace. And again, it's not because God is angry. It's because he can't sit idly and watch evil prevail. And I'd argue with anyone, I'd argue with anyone that a God who sits back and lets evil continue without intervention isn't loving at all. So God has to get involved. And even through his acts of justice, he still provides a way for the restoration and redemption of the humans. Because he loves us. He loves us. And he's absolutely committed to us. Since we don't have all the time that I would love us to have, I recommend going home and reading Genesis 18 through 19, 
It's a very famous story of, of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want you to go there and see how God's loyal love, mercy, and justice is shown through those stories. I also challenge you to see the parallels between the stories we've read so far um, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, specifically look for God hearing the blood of the, or the cry of the oppressed on the earth. Uh, God being patient and wanting to show mercy. Look for God seeing that enough is enough and something must be done. Look for the one family that is saved from destruction and look at how that destruction is caused in parallel with the flood story. So that's some homework for you guys. It's really good. You should read it. <clears throat> now, we're going to fast forward to the second book in the Hebrew Bible called Exodus. Okay, so we, we started off with a couple of, of stories in, in Genesis, and now we're going to fast forward to Exodus. And Exodus starts off with the Israelites being fruitful and multiplying in Egypt. They've just gotten into, or they've been in Egypt through Joseph, and they're in the best of land. They're in like the best part of the land in Egypt. And eventually as time has passed, after careful reading, I personally think that Israel has become cocky and forgotten about their God. Um, the Bible does mention that time has passed since the Israelites have come to Egypt and that the new Pharaoh forgets about the God of Israel, which leads to one of the most horrible, horrendous acts in the scriptures. You guys should know this. Because the Israelites have become great in number, the Pharaoh becomes fearful and they may retaliate or join other forces and overthrow Egypt. So Pharaoh begins to oppress the Israelites and he makes them slaves and he orders that all sons born were to be killed by being thrown into the Nile. Have any of us seen The Prince of Egypt? Great movie. I hear they're going to make a live action movie. That, that should be interesting. Um, so he orders that all sons will be killed by throwing in, being thrown into the Nile. And Pharaoh represents the epitome, the epitome of human evil. He represents what we can become when we are so far removed from the grace of God and when we don't value other humans the way that God does and the way that we should. Not to mention, in this specific story, the Pharaoh is oppressing and killing God's Yahweh Elohim's chosen people. Now, just like in the other stories we've read today, God doesn't allow this evil to prevail, and through one boy named Moses being saved from the wrath of the Pharaoh, God will save his people out of the land of Egypt. So, let's go to Exodus 2, chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. And it says, During those days... The king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried. What do they do? They cry out for help. And who hears it? Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So what do we notice? God again, he hears the cry. He hears the cry of us. He hears our cry to him. Cry out Christian fellowship. It's not in here. <laughs> God sees the injustice of the Egyptians, the injustice that they are doing, and now it's time for him to intervene. Now something we discussed in, in youth group, we've taught, I, I taught this in youth group about a few months back. Um, why did God take so long to intervene? That's a great question, right? I mean, they had been in slavery for probably 200 years at least. Um, they had been in Egypt for 400 years. Um, so why did it take so long for God to intervene? And why, did, or why does God allow bad things to happen? Well, my hunch, this is my hunch, is that the people of Israel may have turned away from God because they were prospering and they have no need for God. We, we see that repetitive cycle in the Bible, right? Oh, they get, they, get all, they get all cocky and then they're like, oh, you're no good, God. Um, which allows them to fall into the hands of the oppression of the Egyptians because, like we've seen before, the way God deals with sin is sometimes to take his hands off of the world and let humans do what they want to do. And number two, this is, this is really important, God can't just come down with the hammer every time someone does something wrong, right? Uh, he is patient. He's very patient. 
and he does allow people the chance to repent and turn back to him. I mean, if you think about it, if God took care of evil the second it happened, none of us would be here today at all, right? None of us, okay? So we can't let our modern human views of retributive justice or whatever it is, eye for an eye thing, you know, we can't let that, those things um, affect the way we think about how God interacts in this world, right? Again, we wouldn't be here. So let's continue. God hears his people. He says enough is enough and it's time to intervene. In Exodus 4, we see the famous burning bush and Moses talking with God. And God's trying to get Moses to go to Pharaoh and demand the freedom of the Israelites. And every time God tells him to be his messenger, Moses has an excuse about why he can't do it. And eventually, he just straight up asks God, choose someone else. I don't, I don't want none of that smoke, right? And Moses rebuttals with God five times. Five times God and him are talking. And this leads... We've been waiting for this all day. This leads to the first time that God is angry in the Bible, okay? In chapter 4, verse 14, so Exodus 4, verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So what, we, what, what could we see about the character of God through this? His, he is very slow to anger. Did he just get mad at Moses the first time Moses was like, nope? No, it took him five times, five times, right? So far in the biblical story, his anger has not shown up. Despite all the human evil that has happened, he has not been angry. And if that is impatience or being slow to anger, I don't know what else is. But I think it's important to know why God does become angry with Moses. God is anger, his anger is slow, but it seems to be triggered. There it is, triggered by something specific. You see, it seems like God is angry with his chosen servant because his chosen servant doesn't want to do what God asked him to do. It seems like his chosen servant has some kind of higher expectation and understanding that, than many others in the past have not had. Now, even though God is angry with Moses, he still provides grace and loyal love by using Moses' brother Aaron to speak to Pharaoh. But the consequence of Moses' actions is that he loses the blessing and opportunity that God originally had for him. And that is a whole other, we could spend a whole other week, so two weeks to three weeks, whatever it is, on that. This first appearance of God's anger in the Bible, listen, this is very key, tells us something very important. Notice that God does not harm Moses. He doesn't harm Moses out of anger. Rather, we're told that God is angry, and then God proceeds to give Moses what he wants. God gives Moses what he actually wanted. Moses' choice leads to the elevation of Aaron as the high priest, and Moses' own eventual diminishment as a leader over Israel. Again, God's justice oftentimes is just giving us what we want. Fine. Again, we see God's loyal love, but also we see his correction with Moses. We should all be familiar with the next part of the story. And I keep saying that, and I, I hope I don't assume here, but, you know, these are very famous stories. And if you don't know these, you guys should go read them because they're great. Um, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and ask him to release God's people. Let my people go. Famous lines, right? Nine times Pharaoh refuses. Nine times. Somewhat refuses. Some of the times he kind of lets them halfway go, and then he's like, nope. And this brings acts of decreation and chaos on Egypt. It isn't until the 10th time where God allows the destroyer to kill all the firstborn boys in Egypt who do not have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts that the Pharaoh eventually relents and lets God's people go. And yes, this is very harsh. This is hard, right? When we read these stories in the Bible of God doing things like this, it's, it's tough. It's tough to read, right? But I want, you to, I want to remind you, the justice of God is giving people to their own desires. And in this case, 
he allows what the Pharaoh ordered against the Israelite boys, you remember in the beginning when he orders the, the boys be thrown into the Nile? That's going to be done to him and to his land in Egypt. So there is some parallel here, right? There is a parallel. Also, I'd like to note that God didn't just destroy Egypt after the first time Pharaoh doesn't comply with Aaron and Moses. God gives Pharaoh and Egypt a chance to do the right thing. In fact, God gives them 10 times, 10 chances to do the right thing. And even when he does enact justice, what does he do? He provides a way to avoid the consequence by putting the blood on the doorpost, which is another example of his mercy and grace through his justice. So after Israel is saved from slavery in Egypt, everything's great, right? Everything's great. Wrong. <laughs> they are traveling. They're, they just got freed from Egypt. And they start grumbling to God about food. I mean, humans are all the same, right? We're all the same. I, I can get very hangry. Ask my wife. And after being freed from slavery, seeing God take care of the Egyptian army and splitting the sea so good that they can walk through it on dry ground, they still can't trust that God will provide for them. So they grumble, and God responds in grace and being slow to anger by giving them food. Heavenly bread and quail, carbs and protein. What else can you ask for? And then they get to Mount Sinai, where God meets with Moses to give him the law and instructions on building the tabernacle. And we're almost to Exodus 34, where we started. God gives Moses the law, the laws and the covenant on the mountain. And Moses tells the people the covenant and they respond with. So Moses gets the, the law, the Ten Commandments and some other things. And he goes to the people and he says, hey, this is what God has for us. We're the people, right? You're the people and we're going to be married to God and we're going to be his people. And he's going to be our God. And they all say, this is what the Bible says. They all say, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. So did they agree to the covenant? They do. Then Moses goes back on the mountain for 40 days where he's given the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, um, the, mobile, the mobile temple, the sanctuary for the Lord. And just like the Israelites do best, and just like we do best, they get impatient and they build a golden calf to worship because they're tired of waiting for Moses. Literally, they've just signed the agreement. They just said, we agree to God. And one of the commandments is don't make any idols. And what do they do two seconds later? Build an idol. And I really love this analogy for this story because it really hits home. It, it's like cheating on your spouse on your wedding night. They have literally just agreed to the covenant vow to, to be each other's each other. And then that same, like within the same day, they go and they worship someone else or they cheat on their spouse. They blow it. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 7, if you guys want to flip there. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, go down at once for your people, he calls, he calls the Israelites his people now, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have behaved corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a cast metal calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an abstinent people. So now leave me alone, Moses, that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And I will make you, Moses, a great nation. Heavy. So after has, Israel has broken the covenant with God, he's not happy. He's what? He's angry. And again, what has triggered that anger? Right? It seems to be, that was cool, right when I snapped the, the ring. Um, it seems to be that his chosen people have disobeyed him and cheated on him with another God. You see, God's chosen people are blessed Listen, but they are also held accountable because they should know better. When God rescues people and brings them close to himself, 
it heightens God's own investment, but it also makes the humans involved more accountable and thus deserving more of God's anger. What we see is that God is angered by betrayal and covenant violation. God being slow to anger means that he won't become angry for just any reason. His anger is aroused by a specific acts of betrayal from his covenant people, and it shouldn't surprise you what happens next. God's anger is, right, because if we've been tracking, how does God respond to his anger? God's anger is diverted in a number of ways. Intercession, appeal to the covenant, self-sacrifice by the righteous intercessor, Moses. Again, anytime God has to enact justice, whether it be because of sadness or anger, he is moved towards grace and mercy all the time. So let's read chapter 32, verse 11 and 14. And I think this is, honestly, it's awesome. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians talk saying with evil motives he brought them out to kill them on the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, Lord, and relent of your doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. And verse 14 is the most important verse in this section. So the Lord relented of the harm which he had said he would do to his people. That, that touches me. So I hope it's clear. God is not looking to destroy everyone. God isn't trigger happy looking to strike down people with lightning. He's not. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's so to anger. He's abounding in loyal love and faithfulness who forgives iniquities, but will bring justice to evil and hold those accountable for their actions. In fact, even though he doesn't destroy the people like Moses asks him to do, the Israelites do face consequences from God. See, our God is a loving God. He wants what's best for us. His baseline motive is grace and mercy and love. And if we look at Exodus 34, 6 through 7, we see the comparison and emphasis between God's love and compassion for the thousands versus his justice for three to four generations. Much less, right, when you compare thousands to three and four. And when verse 7, in that original text, Exodus 34, 6 or 7, when verse 7 says that God visits the iniquities of the third and fourth generations, this doesn't mean that God punishes people for their parents' and grandparents' sins, right? That, that wouldn't fit God's character. That wouldn't fit the actions in the Bible that we've read today. And it wouldn't make sense because later in the story, the descendants of the people who were saved from Egypt that were freed from slavery were able to go to the promised land despite their parents' sin. God doesn't hold our parents' sins against us. However, Douglas Stewart writes that verse 7, the, that verse of speaking of justice, does, does mean that God will punish successive generations for committing the same sins they learned from their parents. They're not blameless for simply having learned it from a previous generation. And one more thing I'd like to point out about verse 7 is that the third and fourth is an idiom it's an idiom that they use in Hebrew, in Hebrew language, that means whatever number, whatever number it is. We see this in, uh, we see this for three, even for four, in Proverbs and in Amos. And th again, remember, this is in contrast to the loyal love that God has for thousands of generations. 
The numerical disparity, the difference between thousands and three to four, drives home the basic point I'm trying to make this morning. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And we see that in James chapter two, verse 13. Now to wrap it up, we're almost done. God doesn't have, let's be clear, God doesn't have two sides. God doesn't have a nice side and a stern side that are in conflict and tension with one another. With, what all these stories and the rest of the Bible and what Exodus 34, 6 through 7 gives us is a statement, listen to this, this is awesome, a statement of stability and assurance that God will deal with us justly and fairly, always tending toward mercy. But any generation will get what it deserves if they choose to act in opposition to God's will. You see, unlike the gods of ancient mythology, we know Yahweh Elohim, the God that we serve, the God of Israel, how he will act in the world. Our God won't smite us because he woke up on the wrong side of the bed, okay? Our God doesn't actually give us what we deserve most of the time, which is a good thing because most of the time we deserve nothing because if we're honest, we're not that good. Our God didn't create humans to be pawns or slaves or sacrifices for him. He, cre he created humans to be like him, to be his representatives on earth, and to do his will. In fact, he was sacrificed for us. Our God doesn't look for any reason, small or big, to retaliate and destroy us. He does the exact opposite and look for any reason to save us, to show us mercy and grace. But he will give us the correction we need so that we can learn and become more like him. Our God doesn't sit back and let evil consume the world. He enacts justice, and through that justice, he always provides a way to be saved, saved from death, saved from sin, and saved from spiritual decay. So to answer the question that we had in the beginning, can God's love and justice coexist? I think the answer is 100% yes. And this all leads us to who? To Jesus. The embodiment of God's love, mercy, justice, forgiveness, and faithfulness. People often think that there's a difference between God in the Hebrew Bible and Jesus in the New Testament. They think that God in the Hebrew Bible is angry and strict and that Jesus is, you know, this loving and gracious and peace guy. But I think if you're tracking with me today and what the Bible says, you'll see that they are actually the same. God and Jesus both start at a place of love, mercy, and grace, but have to deal with the injustices in the world. And in the midst of that justice, still want to save us and give us mercy and grace. And as Jesus ministered to the world and was put on a tree to die for you and I, there we see the fullness of God's character. The act of sacrificial love to punish sin and iniquity once and for all, even though we don't deserve it, despite what you've done, despite where you've been, despite who your parents are, despite how much money you make, despite what clothes you wear, Jesus gave his life for you and for me. And that is 100% on brand with the character of God. Because guess what? Jesus is God. So let us rejoice in the fact that our God is, let's read it together, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abundant of loyal love and faithfulness. Keeper of loyal love for thousands, forgiver of iniquity, transgression, and sins. Yet he will surely not clear the guilty, visitor of the iniquity of father upon sons and upon the sons 
of sons upon the third and the fourth generations. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are amazing. You are so much more to us than we, we deserve. You're compassionate, you're gracious, you're slow to anger, abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. Thank you for holding us accountable and not letting injustices consume the world that you have given us. I know there are bad things going on, Lord, but, it, but if anything, I'm comforted by the fact that you don't take these things lightly and you will intervene when you find it the right time. Lord, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Use us, our church community, to bring the kingdom of God here and to be doers of your kingdom. Provide for our community's needs. Provide for our church needs. Forgive us of our sins, for anything that we've done against you or anyone else. Deliver us from temptation and deliver us from the evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.